Turn with me in your Bibles to Judges 15, where we left off last time, Judges 14. Proceeding through the Old Testament, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, we find ourselves tonight in the middle of the story of the final judge, Samson. that lives in all of us through our sinful nature. And Father, we can learn vicariously through him uh, what not to do um, to enjoy your life that you've brought us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, as I have mentioned, we met Samson for the very first time there in uh, chapter 14. And I, 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 I mentioned to you that he's the last and the best known of all Israel's judges, um, especially infamous for his relationship with Delilah. He's very, his image, you know, I, I made, I called him Fabio, remember? And uh, <laughs> somebody was listening to the podcast without the visual aid. And he came up to me on Sunday and said, who is Fabio? Why were they all laughing? And I said, well, Fabio, which I didn't know at the time I, I showed you that picture is, and thank you, because he's not adequately dressed for church. So we need to send him back to the beaches of Milan, or if there are beaches in Italy. Anyway, he's a real person. I mean, I, I, his name, Fabio, he's really an actor. He's an Italian actor, a fashion model who always kind of gets the gig for the romance novel cover, you know. And uh, if there's anything to do with Samson, they, they know where to go there uh, because somehow he got pegged as that kind of guy. But a uniquely gifted and called man in the Old Testament here, Samson, who God was raising up to deliver the Israelites from a 40-year oppressive occupation by the ruthless Philistines. And so Samson is a man of faith. You don't always know that by looking at his life. Uh, he is uh, in right relationship positionally because of that faith, uh, but he is not faithful. Uh, he is not faithful to his parents, to his calling, to the word of God, or to the Lord himself. And he's got a wild streak, like you and me. It's not that people don't have wild streaks. We all have a wild streak. It's how you respond with the, with the Holy Spirit and the word of God and Christian discipline to the wild streak that you possess that will define whether you can live in God's blessing or not. He does not live in God's uh, fullest blessing, nor does he reach his God-given potential. And that is the lesson of Samuel, Samson. Rather, uh, Not all good beginnings have good endings. God wants us to cooperate with him. And so we've been talking about him. He had a Nazarite vow from birth, which really was just about keeping himself holy. We found that in De Deuteronomy chapter 6 explains a Nazarite uh, vow. 
The secret, of course, to his supernatural strength was his relationship with God, and that's represented in this narrative by his uncut hair, which represents unbroken, uncut fellowship, a vow to God that gives him strength. And so for context, as we dive into Judges 15, Samson has uh, strong-armed his godly parents into facilitating a marriage with the Philistine cutie, uh, with whom he fell head over heels in lust with. And now, you know, Samson, you're supposed to be delivering us from the Philistines, not marrying one of them. And so right from the jump, we find out that he is pushing the envelope. That's his kind of gig. He's a guy who just, as I mentioned last week, he wants to see how far to the very edge I can go and still have a relationship with God and not fall over. And we find that out next uh, sermon. Next week, he's going to fall over completely. Now, he just has temporary little swoonings, but then he's going to really go plummeting headlong uh, next chapter. Uh, but so that's where we're at now. Um, Last week, he was at his ill-fated wedding ceremony with this Philistine girl. Uh, it lasts seven days before it's co uh, consummated. So uh, at the wedding, you'll recall for context to dive into 15 here. Mr. Charisma stands up uh, with the 30 Philistine groomsmen, and uh, he offers a bet, a challenge. And he says, you solve my riddle. And you'll each get a new suit of clothing. You fail to come up with an answer, you each give me one. And so, of course, you know, which is a paradox, uh, the riddle centers around uh, one of the ways he's violated his vow to God. So this is a guy who even, he's so cocky, He's so self-assured in his relationship with God that he's a Jew and God has given him gifts and callings and he just disregards all of that. And when he disregards his vow, it's a big joke to him. He makes a riddle up about, you know, you know he came across the lion's carcass uh, and then he makes a funny little riddle about Come on, you touched a dead roadkill thing which is against the, the vow that you, you took. And, and he thinks it's just one big joke, you know? People just get in that mode where it's like, well, he hasn't struck me dead yet, and so I'm just gonna play games with all of this, and he's a big game player. So, um, so when the 30 bad boys realize that uh, they're stumped, and they're coming up empty with this whole riddle thing, and that they're gonna soon be shopping at Macy's for new clothes, for, that was funny, folks. I don't care. Okay, shopping it in the men's department to pay up for the suits that they're all going to have to buy to Samson. Okay, anyway, uh, they, uh, they go to the fiancé and they say, listen, uh, we want you to get this answer out of him under death threat or we'll kill you and your family. So she goes to work. Uh, given her God-given abilities as a woman, um, and she presses him 24-7 incessantly with tears and crying and whining, and Samson has kryptonite tendency with, with that kind of thing. He can't handle nagging at all. He breaks. He can handle a 1,000 Philistines, 
but he can't handle his woman crying. He falls apart. He starts to cry. And there, there you have it. So he tells his woman the answer. Day seven arrives. He gets up at the wedding, clears his throat, kind of cocky again. Uh, and he says, your time is up. Answer, please. And one of the groomsmen gets up and says, you know, lion and honey. What was so hard about that? And so he, he really gets really upset. His face changes from a cocky, arrogant glow to total crestfallen uh, countenance. The, the Philistines had the correct answer, and there's only one way that they figured it out. Samson figures out that they cheated and that his girl had betrayed him. So he calls his wife a cow, a heifer. Remember, he said, you know, there's only one way that you figured this out. You plowed with my heifer, which is an idiom that just says uh, you should have plowed with an ox, but you've done something. You violated the way things are done. You've cheated. And so he rounds up 30 suits to pay his debt in a most unscrupulous way. He stomps off in a burning rage. He goes back home to mom and dad into Israelite uh, territory, and he leaves the wedding unconsummated. He just, he jilts her at the altar. Goodbye. He's at steam coming out of his ears. It's over as far as he's concerned, as far as everybody knows. Unbeknownst to Samson, when he slips out the back door, the bride's father says, well, we can't bear this kind of disgrace. Anybody uh, like to marry my daughter and the best man says I do and they get married and the dad gives the daughter to the best man but Samson doesn't know that he just goes home mad and now he's sulking now we pick up in chapter 15, some time has gone by, and Samson's anger has apparently subsided. Whether he's bored or lonely, his thoughts turn back to the woman he left at the altar. Verse 1. Later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Well, let's pause there. <laughs> Roman numeral number one, snooze you lose. Now, the plot thickens. Samson has cooled off. He, he returns. He wants to make amends. He brings a nice gesture, a nice young goat for goat kebabs or some meat on the barbecue. And he arrives, and he, and he proceeds to his wife's bedroom. And dad stands in the door and says, no, you're not going in there. And uh, the dad says, I got good news and bad news. Which would you like to hear first? In verse 2, apparently Samson says, give me the bad news. So he justifies and explains his actions. He says, we thought you hated her. Uh, let me remind you, red face, a lot of yelling. You called her a cow. You left. You stomped off. We didn't know when you'd be back. This is disgraceful. We thought it was over. So we... Gave her to your best man. And the good news, though, uh, have you checked out her younger sister? She's even prettier. You know, uh, shall we start the party? And uh, he's not happy. Now, this worked really well with Jacob and Rebecca. 
Remember, he li- he liked the younger, pretty one, prettier one, and, but he got the older Leah, who was kind of plain Jane. But then when he got a proposal, you can have the younger, prettier one. He worked an extra seven years, and then he probably had to work another seven years because Laban was crazy and just wanted him to have free labor there. But uh, that's besides the point. What worked well in Genesis is not going to work out here. So Samson's furious, uh, but he has misdirected anger. Now, David Guzik says this, the root of his problem, bad choices Samson made in love, he had no business allowing himself to fall in love with an ungodly pagan woman. That's the root of the problem. You don't blame dad or blame God or blame whoever. You know, a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. That's a proverb. Uh, and, and so he's going to blame. He's all upset now. You know, here's my take on this before we move forward. Life is hard enough in God's will when we cooperate. Why? make it even harder by living contrary to God's word. And now Samson's the one who's disgraced, and this will be the spark that's going to cause this big war back and forth. Now, uh, to the text, verse 3. Samson says to them, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive grills. Roman numeral number two, boys will be boys. But unfortunately, God was looking for a man, not a boy. Samson, at times, sounds to me like a juvenile delinquent. This is something a 16-year-old would do and has probably done. Um, This time, he says in verse 3, he's going to justify his angry plans. I've really got cause. This time, I'm really going to do some damage because this time I'm truly a victim, not like last time when he went down and he found 30 well-dressed guys and he gave them a beating on their lives, mugged them essentially, took their clothes, and then in payment for his lost bet. But he says, no, 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 no. Oh, I hurt them. Maybe I was out of line there. But this time, oh, yeah. I, see, he's paid a dowry. He's out money, and he's out a wife. They haven't paid him back, and there's no access to the wife's tent because the best man is in there. So he's gone crazy. So he says, this time, oh, I'm justified. And you think the 30 guys I mugged was a big deal? Well, you you ain't seen nothing yet. And so he's going on his way here. I have the right to vengeance, he says, Uh, So, actually, the only person in the universe who has a right to vengeance is God. Nobody on this planet has a right to retaliate or to get even ever. It is forbidden always and never blessed. 
Now, uh, not sure what God expects of military leaders or nations at war, but I do know what he expects of us in this regard. Romans chapter 12 is very clear. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God never blesses getting even. It's a thing we always want to do. If you hurt me or my family, the first natural, sinful, unfortunately, inclination is to hurt you back, but maybe take it up a notch. And the only thing that produces is in the other person, well, I'm going to get even with you, and you're going to see this in the chapter. It's just one up, one up, one up, and it gets bloodier and hotter and more people involved, and it's just a mess. It's not the way to handle when, when somebody has hurt us or uses us. It's just not the way to go about things. Um, we have here the bitter story of retaliation, of trying to avenge wrongs done to us. Uh, it's a never-ending story getting even. And one that never wins in the end. And those who trust in God must be able to say retaliation belongs to God and, and God alone. Here's a quote I read from a commentator. Much of the war, disaster, deep-seated hatred, and pain in our world, public and private, come from the instinct to retaliate. But Jesus told us not to retaliate an eye for an eye but to take control of the situation by giving even more. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. When we do this, we act like God, who did not retaliate against man for his sin and rebellion, but instead he gave his only son to die. So, you know, when you get bitter and you're all angry and you're thinking about ways to either passively aggressive, which means you're, you're being aggressive in a passive way. So you're silent. You give them the silent treatment. That's called being passive aggressive. You're, you're lashing out. You're saying, I, it, it's, I've killed you only silently. And so I didn't use a gun. I just wiped you off the face of the earth. You don't matter anymore. And so we Christians tend to be passive aggressives because to be blatantly uh, aggressive is obviously over the line. But if we can just harbor unforgiveness and bitterness and, and see the ways that we can manipulate and hurt the other person for hurting us or our family, then we think that that's more acceptable. But it never is. Uh, it's counterproductive. You'll poison your heart. You will poison your heart. And when you're angry towards somebody, don't deceive yourself into thinking that that anger isn't going to find a way out. Because it will. Because you cannot have all of that embroiled in you and think that you're going to put on a happy face and that that's not going to spring out and defile. It always will. And that's what, part of the reason why Jesus says, don't do it. That's my department and my department only. 
And so we need to, above all things, guard our hearts because it's the fountain from which your entire life springs. That's why it says, above all things, guard that place. And when you see a little festering sore of unforgiveness, bitterness, rage, and anger, and retaliation, you better let the Holy Spirit breathe on that and heal that. Or you're going to end up like this boyish, mischievous um, man here who's got an idea, verses 4 and 5. Not that it matters much, but the foxes are probably jackals. I've got a picture for you here. Uh, They're related words in the Hebrew. Jackals uh, travel in packs. Foxes are solitary. So it would make more sense that, not that God couldn't have helped him get 300. I don't know that God was particularly wanting to help him with 300 foxes, but he got 300 foxes nonetheless. And and that's the jackal. And he tied the tails together and he put a torch, a payload, a little missile, a flaming arrow, and he puts it uh, tied to them and sets them free. And they go panicked all over the place. Thank you for the jackal there. And... um, and, and there they go, panicked, darting all over, causing chaos and confusion and fire that wrecks the grain, all that hard work. The vineyards and the olive groves all go up in Philistine territory. And the Philistines know exactly who's behind and exactly why. Verses 6 through 11. When the Philistines ask who did this, they were told, Samson, the Timnites' son-in-law, because his wife was given to his friend. Hmm. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. Uh, The devil is a ruthless taskmaster. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. Now you see that keeps coming up. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave at the rock of Edom. The Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. Uh, The men of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. There it is again. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock there and uh, where he was hiding in the cave or hanging out, whatever, and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are ruling over us? What have you done to us? So Roman numeral number three, uh, satisfied with the status quo. God's people are compromised. They're under the oppression of the Philistines, and Israel is content. And I'm going to say later, as we talk about this paragraph, that I believe they had battered wife syndrome. Um, that here's a rescuer, and they're like, what are you doing? We got life okay here under this compromised situation, oppressed by these brutes, yes, but... You know, they want Samson to stop rocking the boat. The Jews do. So first you see more carnage. So in this uh, ever-increasing disaster that's unfolding by a man who just blindly was living for his own passions, disregarding God's word, you can trace all of this back to Samson doing his own thing. Uh, The father-in-law and Samson's wife, his daughter, uh, perish 
at the hands of the Philistines in retaliation. And in retaliation for that, Samson goes into ninja attack mode, and many bad boy oppressors die. And uh, Samson is warring single-handedly. He's a one-man menace there. Now, uh, in verse 8, Samson retreats for a season after he slaughtered, I don't know, it doesn't really say how many hundreds of Philistines, maybe I think it was a thousand or I'm getting mixed up with the future reference that's coming. Uh, Samson retreats into a cave. The Philistines hear where he is, that he's in Judah. And so they come looking for Samson. Now they are in control of Israel. They're occupying, but, but they're not fighting right now because they're the uh, occupiers. And Israel is uh, acquiescing to them and has submitted. But the Philistines come calling, and, and the men of Judah are like, what, what's up? Why, why are you mad at us? Are you, you going to wage war with us? Look, oh, we love you guys, and uh, we're serving you. We're your slaves. You're the boss. What do you want? And they said, we're not coming to make war. We want one guy, one troublemaker. And they said, oh, is that all? Um, calm down, you guys. Will the men of Judah, men of God, Israelites, will get the deliverer who's going, God has raised up to help us overcome you, we're going to get him and hand him over to you. And so they go to the cave, the Jews. And to tell you how bad this dude is, Samson is, they send 3,000 Navy SEALs to go get him in a cave. One guy, 3,000 guys, go get Samson. I'm not going alone, okay? Well, we'll send 3,000 guys, you'll be saved. So the 3,000 guys go to the cave, and they say, Samson, get out of here. And he says, are you kidding me? You, you're going to hand me over to them? And they say, yes, absolutely. They are going to, he says, uh, listen, I will go willingly. I will go willingly if you don't kill me. Now, it seems to me like, like Samson is having a little uh, spiritual uh, awakening. He, he's changing. He's softer. He has a softer answer. He doesn't want to kill his own countrymen. And he's going to have to trust God by being shackled like that. I mean, even if he thinks that he can take them, he still has to trust God. And so he's in a better place, it seems. But what about these Jews? This I just want to stop and make a point. What a pathetic state that verse 11 reveals Listen to these Israelites. Don't you realize they're the boss? What are you rocking the boat for? We serve them. They call the shots. They say, jump, Jew, and we jump. What was wrong with this picture? We get three squares a, a day. We get to live in our little houses. We can't go out very much, you know, and, and we don't have any weapons and we're oppressed and we, we are miserable, but at least we're eating and we have houses. We're happy. What'd you go and stir them up for? Now we're on their side and we're going to take you and hand them over to them. You know what it reminded me of? Because I wrote down, they delivered 
the deliverer over to the bad guys. And now who did I think of? Jesus, the deliverer, who's in the garden and soldiers come and the Jews are sending for him through the soldiers. And, and what do they do? They bind him with ropes. It's a beautiful picture, once again, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, he's going to go along willingly, and uh, he's going to trust in God. Here's a quote here about that pathetic situation of accepting compromise as um, a believer. How sad when God's people are bullied and battered by their own sinful passions, by the fear of man, by peer pressure, by anxieties and cares and guilt and shame and the incessant lies of the evil one. Some people would rather be a punching bag and take the abuse than to do the work and the discipline that overcoming requires. Verses 11 through 17, and we'll be done. I'm going to stop a little short in the chapter. Uh, so uh, the last half of verse 11. So the men of Judah say, don't you realize that the Philistines are our rulers? What have you done to us? Samson says, I merely did to them what they did to me. There it is again, the retaliation thing, back and forth. It's over and over. The Holy Spirit really wants you to get that in this chapter. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. So Samson said, well, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Agreed, they answered. We, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We won't kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. And as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Then Samson said, wrote a little poem again. He likes poems. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. And once again, the NIV editors there have done a pretty good job of rhyming it because it rhymes in Hebrew as well. All right. Uh, when he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi, means jawbone hill. All right. Let's pause there. We're going to just end on this note because I don't want to lose it. Um, Roman numeral number four, uh, God to the rescue. Samson agrees to go quietly if they agree not to kill him, like we've said. Uh, there's no desire in his heart to kill his brother Jews. So God is faithful even when we are faithless. And so for safe measure, he says, look, I'll go with you. But they say, oh yeah, of course you will. But we're going to tie you up just in case you get any ideas. And so they tie him up. Now, at, in verse 14... As the posse approaches the Philistine troops, they are overjoyed. They got their guy. He burned down all their food, their groves, everything. And here he comes, and he's bound. 
and they're very, very happy. They're overjoyed. And so they start a charge. They're just going to tear him to shreds. And what they used to do in ancient warfare was to shout, all of them, a horrendous, loud shouting that really intimidated their opponents. And so they start to kind of psych him out with this shouting, but it only serves to arouse Samson. And now it's morphine time, and the Lord enables him to kind of become the Power Ranger that he knows he can be. I'll give you a moment to process that. And he gets his uh, strength going, and God comes upon him. Uh, he Now, the, the, the ropes are nothing to him because of his relationship with God. Boom, gone. A little faith. Jesus says, you, talk, you tell that mulberry tree, get up, throw yourself into the sea. It'll get up by its roots. He says, if you just had a pinch of faith, what you could do, he says, you could look at that mountain and say, you're in my way right now. I'd like you to, to pick up and be thrown into the sea with you, and it would obey you. Jesus saying, you have no idea the power of God that you have access to as a believer, not because of your own merit, but because of God's grace. And, and so the, here's the idea there that God didn't just give this man supernatural strength, but he gives to all his covenanted children who are devoted to him under the new covenant of his blood. We are all Samson's and able to do these great feats of strength as God enables us. And so go, there go the ropes, and then he, he finds a weapon, he picks up a fresh as opposed to an old, brittle, dry uh, jawbone and starts a Holy Ghost swinging. And he just, just he's a thousand, verse 15, a thousand Philistines are whacked and survivors are, are fleeing for their lives. Now, do you think that the men of Judah pick up some weapons and, and help him? No, they don't. They're just going to watch, like a, a, a sit down to an action movie, you know, and let's watch the ninja go crazy on them, you know? And that, that's what he was doing, too, a thousand of them with a jawbone. And so verse 16, um, nothing says victory and celebration to Samson like a poem. And so, I mean, he wrote it at his wedding. He had a little riddle and a little verse. And so now to con commemorate his triumph, um, he, is, he writes a little poem. And uh, like I said, donkey and pile rhyme in Hebrew. So I try to make one up better than what's there. All right? So brace yourself. So where did I write it? Oh, with a jawbone of an animal, I destroyed them like a cannibal. <laughs> That's the idea behind it. Okay, you deserve this, and I'm going to tell you what one, uh, the Moffat translation has, the King James word for a donkey, and I'm going to read you what that says, because this is really the meaning of what happened, his poem. With a jawbone of an ass, I piled them up in a mass. And, and that's exactly what the Hebrew says. A very nice English translation. Moving on. <laughs> you push me to it. 
I'm blaming you for that. All right. P.S., of course, the name is Ramath Lehi Jabon Hill, and I'm sure it's still called that to this day, probably. Uh, let me close out with something that's really on my heart and kind of a, um, an indirect application from what we just read. Uh, one preacher's come up with a five-point sermon on the jawbone of a donkey, likening it to the weapon of the gospel. Number one, it was a novel weapon. It's one you don't ordinarily think of using in a war. You know what? If only I had a jawbone of a donkey right now. You know, it's just novel. It's not something that you would think of as a weapon like the word of God or a way of life that God has handed you. You don't think of that as a weapon, but it is the power of God. Number two, it was a most convenient weapon. It was right there. God just said, oh, look down, Samson. He's like, here, the ropes come off. I got a thousand guys. What am I going to do? It's right there. And the word of God, the gospel, is right there. You don't have to reach up high or low. He says, where is it? Romans chapter 10, the word is in you. It's on your lips. It's in your mouth. Speak. That's what you have to do. And the weapon. Things happen when you pray and when you believe the word of God and when you quote the word of God and believe in your heart that that's a promise of Almighty God and I stand on that and I'm correcting the dumb, stupid thing that's trying to get into the helm and shift my life and instead I'm going to quote the Bible. For God has not given me a spirit of fear but a power and love and a sound mind. Or whatever the promise is. There's power there. It's convenient, but you have to have it in you. Number three, his outline, it was a simple weapon, not complicated. Jesus said, let the kids come to me. They get me. They get bad and e good and evil and, and, and God. They understand it's simple. It's not hard. Uh, number four, it was a ridiculous weapon. So they get back to Philistine territory, and somebody says, what happened? And he says, oh, it was a slaughter. He killed a 1,000 of us. Well, what kind of sword did he use? Well, he didn't really use a sword. Well, what did he use? Did he use one of those ox goads like that last guy did? You know, the ox goad, Shamgar. Remember chapter 3? Never mind. You were absent that Wednesday night. Did he use, uh, you know, a club? Did he pick up a stick? What did he use? Did he use his bare hands? Tell me he used a slingshot. No, he used the jawbone of a donkey. <laughs> the word, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the gospel, foolishness. Oh, come on, a man on a cross. And God in heaven and sins of the world and resurrection from the dead and Lazarus come forth. Yeah. Powerful. Power of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness. It's ridiculous to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And finally, it was a successful weapon. Listen to this. I tell you the truth. 
If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there. And Jesus says, it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing will be impossible for you in God's will, in consistent keeping with his word. Nothing. He says, that I've given you a weapon. And Paul the Apostle says, Ephesians 6, he says, you know what? The gospel is like weaponry. And he says, oh, look, I, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of right living before God, the shield of faith, the feet shod with the, the, with the war sandals, the gospel of peace. It's a weapon that we forget about. We just think we don't have any power and everything's happening around us and we just think, oh, there's nothing we can do. And that's the lie from the devil. You have a weapon. You have a, it's ridiculous <laughs> to some. Well, what are you going to do? Oh, you're going to get down on your knees. Oh, that's going to help a lot. It just sounds ridiculous to them. But we have a weapon. It's successful. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Try the weapon as we are. Try praying for those who persecute you instead of retaliating. Try being kind to somebody who's caused you a lot of pain. See if it works. Try answering back in a soft and gentle way to somebody who's harsh and aggressive. Try it. It's a weapon. It disarms. It works. He says you'll win the battle. He says try submitting to God and resisting the devil. It's a weapon. He says, no, the Bible. What did Jesus teach us? He's up against the serpent, the beast. The beast has cornered our Savior as a man who has not eaten in 40 days. And he says, number one, what does he say? Number one, he says, you must be hungry. You know, use your power. Turn those stones right there. Don't, 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 don't they remind you of Mary's bread from the oven? Come on, man. Dig in. And he says, Deuteronomy 8, 3, jawbone. <laughs> and he says, he takes it, and he comes back, and he says, you know what? Throw yourself off the top of this roof. You can show everybody who you are, no cross involved. They'll repent, they'll believe, you a little shortcut. Come on, just, just come on, jump. It's written in the Bible in Psalm 91. He will send his angels to guard you. And they'll catch you. It even says in your own word. And then Jesus says, Deuteronomy 6.13. You know, test the Lord God. It's also written in the Bible. And then he says, well, you know what? You give me what I want. I'll give you what you want. And what I want is a little worship from you. And he says, you know what? 
Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus is modeling to you, when your back is against the wall, you have nothing, no power, and you can smell the evil in the room. He says, use the jawbone. Pick it up. It may look ridiculous, but it's convenient. It's simple. It's right there. And it works. A thousand bad guys went down with the word, the gospel, the living faith. Use it. It works. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and just the applications that we can find in your word through this story. It's just wonderful. Help us to take to heart to remember the wonderful privilege of having the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives and the tools you've given us to live this Christian life in blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.